Hi, I'm Rasha, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show focused on policy analysis and international affairs. In this episode, we explore the People's Republic of China and their policies towards Southeast Asia. In recent years, China has challenged existing international frameworks, such as the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, through territorial claims and developing infrastructure to reinforce those claims. In particular, the South China Sea remains a contentious area. Since the end of World War II, China has claimed the South China Sea via its Nine Dash Line, an area that is already subject to competing territorial disputes from other adjacent states. This line extends far beyond China's coastline and any maritime norms. The South China Sea is a crucial strategic area. One third of the world's trade passes through it, carrying over three trillion dollars in material. It also contains vast fisheries critical to food security in Southeast Asia, and is believed to have large oil and gas reserves beneath the seabed. On February 25th, the United States sailed the USS Carl Vinson aircraft carrier and a strike group through the South China Sea in clear defiance of China's claims. These territorial disputes continue to be an international hotspot with no clear end in sight. To gain more insight into how China's actions fit into its strategic framework, I spoke with Dr. Paul Evans. Dr. Evans is a professor at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia. His research is focused on reframing the Asia-Pacific security order. He's currently finishing a book on global China. Thank you so much for joining us on Policy Talks.、Uh, Our first question, we'll just we'll just get right into it. Is is、mm. as you know, the territorial disputes are very much prevalent throughout Southeast Asia,、uh, but China really remains aggressive in the claims around along its periphery. So, based on your expertise, and and I hear you're you're writing a book right now on global China. How do you you know how does China approach the expansion of its territory? Well, China is.、Uh Uh, an interesting country, in part because it has land borders with 17 different countries, and depending about how you define its maritime borders, there can be seven or eight more, five or six more.、Uh, so managing border relations、uh, has been a, <laughs> a long-term Chinese project that had become more complicated、uh, after the end of the Second World War. As、uh, new kinds of international law was developed, that uh, uh, replaced some of the understandings of what had been in place historically. So, in uh, China's uh, uh, land borders, generally、uh, are being handled pretty well. There's only really one or maybe two countries with which China has land border、uh, disagreements,、uh, where the challenges are is on its maritime boundaries. And those、uh, include in the East China Sea with Japan, but、uh, on the South China Sea in particular, where there are several claimants to uh, uh, sea or more often land、uh, islands, rocks、uh, in the region that bring China is one of just、um, five claimants to portions of that region. 
and it's the one, the South China Sea is the one that's attracted the most amount of tension in recent times. And I think it's partly because of the uh, dispute itself, uh, a territorial sovereignty dispute, but also the general overlay is the United States and China and uh, the search uh, for dominant naval uh, prominence uh, in the region. And this is so it's even more complicated than a territorial issue. It's a geopolitical issue as well. And that brings us into one of the major flashpoints of, uh, of this decade. So you touch on, you know, China bordering 17 countries. So it obviously has a lot of relationships it needs to, to maintain. How, how did China's unilateral claims affect its regional relationships and its diplomacy overall? Well, if we're talking the South China Sea, um, there are several claimants, as mentioned, uh, five, five major ones. And uh, China's role uh, in this has not been different in kind, but different in degree than the other claimant states. Uh, so while China has taken to uh, occupying and uh, uh, putting various kinds of structures, including military structures, on some of the uh, island spaces that it is claiming. Uh, other countries have done that too. Uh, so this is not, these territorial disputes are not, not so much good guys and bad guys as, uh, as, uh, as uh, some who feel their claims are best advanced on the basis of the United Nations uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, and others, China in particular, uh, who feel that historical rights and another way of understanding sovereignty and who who owns what or at least who can control what um, there's 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 a different battle there's a different kind of fight about the international laws that apply and it comes out very specifically in what used to be the Chinese claim for a nine dash line. Mm -hmm. This was the idea that came out just after the second world war that there was a zone that China had uh, a kind of domination over for a very long period of time because of fishing rights, travel, some of its military activities dating over several hundred years. And just after the end of the Second World War, uh, using U.S. warships, the nationalist government, pre-communist government, uh, mapped out an area that they called the 11 Dash Line. And for uh, many years since then, uh, China, in now in its communist Chinese uh, vein, as well as nationalist China in, on the Republic of, uh, of China on Taiwan, have stuck to that kind of claim. What has happened and why the pressure is on China, the spotlight is on China, is that subsequent to the end of the Second World War, with the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, some new rules were put in place, or at least what we're understanding to be rules. And suddenly that nine-dash line put China in a headlong con uh, conflict with not only um, uh, the other claimants in the region, but the United States and a variety of other countries that don't necessarily take a stand on who those rocks belong to, but didn't feel that the Chinese understanding of the, uh, their nine-dash line, their historical rights, they felt that was out of date and that there were new rules in place that China has to live by. And as China has been active in building uh, uh, structures 
including airports, uh, including military facilities on five of those island bases. That's the that's the immediate claim that the immediate reason that some are framing this as Chinese aggressiveness. The more common word used in the region is not aggressive but assertive. Mm -hmm. uh, aggressive often means taking things away from people who already had them, as in Russian aggression in the Crimea. Uh, aggression in the South China Sea is a wee bit more complicated because the Chinese have not yet put up, uh, have not knocked anybody off of some islands, um, but rather claimed ones that um, uh, no one had put military bases on before. So uh, the, the phrase often that is used is Chinese assertiveness, just a slight difference than aggressive. We'll have more with Dr. Paul Evans after a quick break. You're listening to Policy Talks podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. Meanwhile, China is leveraging military modernization, influence operations, and predatory economics to coerce neighboring countries to reorder the Indo-Pacific to their advantage. While some view China's actions in the East and South China Seas as opportunistic, I do not. I view them as coordinated, methodical, and strategic, using their military and economic power to erode the free and open international order. That was U.S. Pacific Command Chief Admiral Harris strongly condemning China's posturing before Congress on February 14th. In his testimony, Harris warns of China's advancing military capability and continued disregard for the rules-based international order. Dr. Paul Evans answered a few questions about how nearby states are affected by these developments. So if we zoom into ASEAN, you know, ASEAN nations and how they've reacted to China's policy uh, in this South China Sea, what are their options to protect their own sovereignty? And of course, you know, China's Belt and Road Initiative um, adds a, a different flavor to that uh, to that dynamic. Do you do you see it complicating the relationship? It is indeed becoming more complicated. And uh, ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, does not take a position uh, in support of any country in their specific claim. But there are countries in Southeast Asia that uh, uh, argue vociferously with China. The two key ones are Vietnam and the Philippines, but also Brunei, Malaysia, and um, uh, uh, well, potentially Indonesia uh, also have claims uh, in the region. And this is, becomes complicated. Territorial disputes are always complicated. There are going to be, there are many, many territorial disputes in maritime, East Asia, Southeast Asia, and even off uh, uh, in our Canadian Arctic. Uh, so maritime disputes are not unusual. But what makes these taken fairly seriously is that China has been the biggest player in taking actions to try to change the status quo, to change the military balance in the region, uh, and to... Um, be, be bullish in its assertion of what its claims are to sovereignty. 
Now, other countries have contested that. The Philippines took China to the uh, uh, permanent court of arbitration. China didn't agree to be taken there. Nevertheless, the judges came up with a ruling. So the Philippines' response was largely legalistic. Other countries have taken to uh, making their case strongly, other Southeast Asian countries, by a slight realignment. And that's the Vietnam, for example, has taken an interesting approach, which has been to work with the United States. For the first time since the Vietnam War in 1975, an American aircraft carrier is going to be visiting Vietnam next month. Now, that's not immediately about one of the territorial disputes, but it's about some countries in Southeast Asia feeling a closer relationship with the United States, including in the military dimension, uh, can strengthen their position. All of that uh, stands against, as you put it, the Belt and Road Initiative and the fact that China has become by far the major economic player in Southeast Asia and with Southeast Asian countries. So you're caught in a situation, uh, the Southeast Asian countries that uh, are part of the territorial disputes where they don't like particularly what China is doing. They're trying to strengthen their case as best they can. But at the same time, their economic relationships with China are becoming so important. China is the major trading partner of every country in Southeast Asia except one and the level of its foreign investment, its investment in transportation infrastructure, of which the, 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 the new Belt and Road Initiative is just, just one dimension. China is the economic superpower in the region to which the economic and, and commercial interests of every Southeast Asian country uh, are, are deeply involved. It's the kind of great gravitational pull. So when you have a security tension uh, at the same time that you have economic interdependence and in some ways economic dependence on China, you have a really interesting play that is the definition of Southeast Asian international relations right now. So you touched on uh, security tensions and you know this brings to mind Japan and Japan's uh, current status developing really strong security relations with ASEAN partners for years. Um, based on your perspective, what threat does Japan pose to the expanding influence of China uh, in this region? I think that Japan, for since, since World War II, uh, since the end of the war, and particularly in the 1960s and beyond, has been one of the best economic partners in Southeast Asia. They've been reliable. Uh, they have not made any kinds of... Uh, uh, military uh, thrusts into the region. They have helped with the establishment of multilateral institutions that uh, has worked with ASEAN as an organization. Japan has been a pretty good neighbor. Now, uh, Japan has been critical of China on its maritime uh, activities in the South China Sea, but particularly a bilateral dispute between uh, China and Japan. And uh, the Armed forces of the of Japan have been increased, uh, and Japan, uh, in part because of that dispute, direct dispute with China, but also Japan, in under Mr. Abe, has taken steps to strengthen its uh, naval capabilities, to now have more visits, ship visits, military ships, naval ships, 
uh, in the region and is looking to uh, arrangements with Australia, the United States, mm-hmm. uh, and potentially India for collaborative naval activities, not directly to counter China, but to uh, increase uh, what is seen from their perspective as freedom of navigation and to be seen again as the player. If we'd had this discussion two or three years ago, we wouldn't have used the word Japan and the word military in the Southeast Asian context in the same sentence. But Japan in the last two years has been looking at ways to slowly and in cooperation with others expand its naval presence in the region. More more ships being sent in for visits to the South China Sea area. And it's as part of of this alignment to signal to China that um, uh, several countries are concerned that they want the United States to stay in the region and that while China is welcome to be one player, they fear Chinese dominance in the naval in the in the maritime approaches in the South China Sea. We'll conclude our conversation with Dr. Paul Evans after a final break. You're listening to Policy Talks podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. We have no position on the competing claims to sovereignty. We have no claims of our own. But we insist that it is absolutely vital that all countries abide by international law, settle disputes peacefully, and in the context of this particular dispute that has been the subject of the decision last night, that both countries abide by the decision of the tribunal. It is an important test case for how the region can manage disputes peacefully. It's an opportunity for all parties in the region to come together and for claimants to re-engage in dialogue with each other based on greater clarity around maritime rights. That was Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull commenting on a 2016 decision by the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea that ruled against China's claims and the Nine Dash Line. To conclude our conversation, I asked Dr. Paul Evans about the place of Western powers like Australia in these territorial disputes. So, you know, you you talked about... uh, the joint freedom of, of navigation, naval exercise, and noting that Australia and, and, and the United States have recently signaled to the possibility of this exercise going through the South China Sea, how might power projections by these Western nations affect China's regional policy? Well, I think it's, it's still the case that the United States has... Uh, commanding naval superiority in the Western Pacific. But that is changing. Uh, Over the last decade, uh, China has invested in a major way in its naval, in its uh, air force, uh, and also in its missile and other kinds of technologies that make it much more formidable force in that part of the world than it has has been in in several hundred years. And this is of of 
interest because, again, if we were having this conversation two or three years ago, it was pretty clear that China's effort was to be able to pretend to protect waterways or at least to disrupt an enemy in waterways 100 or 200 miles offshore from China, principally focused on a potential conflict uh, in the Straits of Taiwan, uh, around Taiwan. But in the last three years, it is very clear now that China's blue water capabilities are looking to extend beyond that not just 100 or 200 or 300 miles offshore, but into the North Pacific in a bigger way, and also into the Indian Ocean, and perhaps in due course into the Arctic and the Antarctic. So China's blue water capability is seen as getting stronger and is shifting from immediate territorial defense into being a force that can connect where China has economic interests. And now that China is a global player, with huge economic investments, not just in its immediate neighborhood in Southeast Asia, but across to Africa. China is now the largest investor and becoming the largest trading partner with most African countries. Once you see this Chinese gravitational economic uh, zone increasing, China is now looking to have capabilities in the event of difficulties to be able to come to um, keep sea lines of communication open for its international connections. China lives by the idea of um, freedom of navigation. There's, uh, but where the conflict is, it's not over civilian ships, those uh, you know, tankers, those um, container ships that are the lifeblood of China and the world economy. Where the dispute is about is on the naval side and which country is going to have the capability to dominate in the event of a military dispute. And that's the geopolitical overlay of China now directly confronting and competing with the United States, not on a global basis, but on the Pacific Ocean and increasingly in the Indian Ocean as well. So, Dr. Evans, looking forward, uh, you know, seeing the context and the different actors at play and all the considerations within, within the region, what developments should we expect to see in the South China Sea and the wider Southeast Asia region going forward? I think one of the positive signs in the last two years since the uh, permanent court of arbitration came up with its decision that um, basically undercut the uh, concept of historic rights and China's claim to something like uh, a nine-dash line of sovereignty over that area, uh, that the situation has actually stabilized. First is that um, uh, none of the countries in Southeast Asia want a military conflict with China. It's too important to their economies, and it would uh, be devastating to the international order. They think on balance they can live with China. And in these last two years, um, there have been some quiet changes uh, in the region and, and a little bit calmer waters in the region. China is now, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, China is now uh, uh, negotiating with ASEAN a code of conduct. This doesn't settle the territorial disputes, but it says how you manage them. And uh, these would be on rules of... Uh, 
of notification of movement. Uh, now there will be things on joint development of resources, even when sovereignty is not established in a, in a situation of uh, disputed sovereignty. So I think there's there's some reason for optimism now, and it's an optimism uh, based on realism. China has growing influence in the region, and Mr. Trump's government uh, in the United States has not increased confidence in Southeast Asian countries that in the maybe the short term, but that certainly in the long term, the United States is going to stand as the guarantor of the uh, maritime stability. There's a view that the balance of power is shifting. Now, one thing that from Canadian perspective is important, Canada is does not take positions on the individual territorial disputes, but Canada, like others, had come out in support of the uh, uh, the tribunal ruling, and Canada had also come out in support of the, um, the UNCLOS, the uh, UN Convention on Law of the Sea, as on balance, the best way of approaching this issue. Where Canada and other countries, including countries in the region, are most concerned, if you ask me what is the biggest thing that is going to be on our minds over the next five years, it's, it's actually not going to be the maritime naval tensions. They'll increase, but the fundamental problems are with fish stocks and maritime resources, uh, marine resources in the South China Sea that are being very quickly depleted partly because of Chinese action, but also by uh, the actions of several countries. In my worst scenario, where it's going to not be too long before there's going to be more submarines than fish in the South China Sea, and that would have devastating consequences for the protein supply of two billion people who uh, depend upon what comes out of that ocean, or that sea, in one way or another. In Canada, we can remember what happened when our East Coast fisheries collapsed 25 years ago. There's a lot of alarming scientific evidence that, that one of the most bountiful fishing areas in the world is on the edge of that big collapse. So we have a, a, a maritime set of territorial disputes that are not going to be resolved in the short term. We have the overlay of strategic competition between the United States and China and we have some very serious human security issues in the region. And that's why focusing on the South China Sea, seeing it not as a battle between good guys and bad guys, but between people who are going to face some very big shared problems very soon and are trying to find a way to live with each other in the shadow of China. Uh, this is uh, the topic that uh, uh, we're going to be discussing, and we hope there might be even a minor Canadian role in over the next 10 or 20 years. Dr. Evans, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for a lot of food for thought and bringing us, you know, uh, to know the context better. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the line, and, and you must let us know when you're, when you're next in Ottawa. Uh, we'd, we'd love to, to have you in the studio. So thank you again so much for your time. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure. This subject's important uh, on the west coast of Canada, but in the nation's capital as well. And my graduate students uh, and our faculty members here are uh, living on the edge of this one. Uh, and we're very appreciative that you took the time to, to uh, sound out some views on this, to try to take a balanced perspective on mm -hmm. this coming, uh, how this coming conflict can be reduced. Thank you very much, Dr. Evans.
Thank you again. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. This episode was made possible thanks to the support of the Carleton University Graduate Students Association. The GSA represents the collective interests and promotes the general welfare of the graduate students of Carleton University, and they offer a suite of resources and services to help graduate students make the most of their school experience. To learn more, you can visit their website at gsacarleton.ca. I'd also like to acknowledge the hard work of our production team, Mark Hyken, Stephen Cook, and Joe Venkatish. Until next time, I'm Rasha, and this is Policy Talks. <laughs>